This is Brian Croft. Welcome to another edition of Trench Talk, the podcast of Practical Shepherding. I'm joined with Jim Sebastio and a special guest. So Jim's going to introduce him in a moment. Before we do that, I want to remind everybody, you can go to practicalshepherding.com and access all of our resources there. Go to sponsor or pastor, and that's one of the ways you can financially help the ministries to go there and spread the word of how to care for pastors in that way. We want to jump right in, as we normally do. So Jim, we have a really special guest who means a lot to both of us, and we're thankful he's willing to come and have a conversation with us. Will you introduce him for us? Yes, Brian, I'm happy to introduce uh, one of my dearest friends uh, and one of my mentors in ministry. Uh, Austin Walker was uh, a pastor in England for uh, over 45 years, Uh, and um, uh, I first met Austin in 1988 when I was blessed to do an internship at what at that time was Crawley Reformed Baptist Church, now uh, Maidenbower uh, Baptist Church, uh, which is in West Sussex, about 40 miles south of, of London. And Austin and his wife, Mai, who we'll talk to in another podcast, are, are here for a couple of weeks, and we asked if we could uh, do a podcast and uh, do an interview with uh, Austin in a way that I thought would be very encouraging and edifying uh, to others as a brother who has uh, was a church planter uh, starting back in the early 70s. So, uh, Austin, greetings. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, jump right in. Jim, jump right into to questions. Oh, okay, yeah, so. all right. Well, Austin, uh, we know you, but uh, obviously uh, many uh, who are listening to this, this will be an introduction. Uh, I will say the name may be familiar if you have read Practical Shepherding books. Austin and Brian wrote uh, a book on caring for widows, and if you've read the uh, the dedication to the pastor's soul that Brian and I wrote together. Uh, we dedicated the book to Austin as well as to another servant of Christ there in England, a man named Bill Hughes. Uh, but Austin, we want you to introduce yourself, and if you would, uh, maybe just start with uh, telling us how you came to know the Lord. Oh, you, forgot, you forgot one thing, though, we got to add. The New Friendship book. Austin Walker wrote the foreword for the New Friendship. So if you've got the New Friendship book, You've read it, same Austin Walker too. So okay, right, keep there going. you go. Right, I was I was brought up in North London, and I was converted when I was fifteen. I did not have a very strong Christian background. My parents went to church, but I stopped going when I was about twelve. I couldn't see any point, so I stopped altogether. And for some reason, I don't know why, I can't think back, I can't remember, I started going again when I was 15. And it was more uh, of a kind of Billy Graham type evangelistic program that our church was involved in. So one January 1961, I think it would have been, I went forward uh, at the altar call. But I, it became clear to me pretty soon after that that I was not converted by walking down the front. Mm. And between that and my baptism at the Easter of the same year, God changed my heart. Three things stood out very, very clearly to me. One, I wanted to read my Bible, which I'd never wanted to do before. Secondly, I wanted to pray to God, something I 
never really done before. My mother told me to say my prayers, but that was just very formal. And the third thing I wanted to do was I found I had a desire to worship God with God's people. And I sat down and thought, where did those desires come from? Because they were not there three or four months before this. And I concluded that despite the fact, now looking back, I knew very little. I knew that Jesus Christ was the savior of sinners. I knew I was a sinner and I'd cast myself upon him. Uh, so I conclude that in time between that altar call, where I, I am absolutely certain I was not converted, hmm. and the time I was baptized four months later, you know, God did a work of saving hmm. grace in my heart. I had a lot of questions still because I was not well taught. The biggest question I had was what am I here for? Who am I? I had no real sense of purpose. Um, when I left school, well, as I, as I was still at school, and then when I left school, I was very attracted by a kind of philosophy called existentialism. But it left you in catch-22. You didn't know whether you were coming or going. It was utterly fatalistic. But personality-wise, I was drawn to it. Uh, but I came to see very soon after that, when I was a student in Aberystwyth uh, under Jeff Thomas's ministry, he came to Aberystwyth and began a series of sermons in Genesis. And it wasn't long before my big question was answered satisfactorily as we went through Genesis 1, and I saw that I was a creature made in the image of God. Sinful, yes, but made in the image of God and therefore had a dignity and a, a purpose which was God-given. Uh, I've never doubted that since. Hmm. Tell us, Austin, tell us about your just training in the ministry. You're you're in a call into the ministry, and then how you got trained before you actually went into the ministry. Jeff Thomas was really my mentor. Uh, he was the one who gave me books to read. So I was introduced to people like B.B. Warfield, John Murray, uh, E.J. Young, uh, Old Testament scholar, um, people of that uh, nature, which was very different to what I'd been brought up on. I'd been reading Watchman Nee and a few other things like that, which were not really Bible-based. Uh, thankfully, I didn't understand much of Watchman Nee, so it never affected me. I never did get rid of it because I never under, really understood what he was trying to say. I understand now. But yeah, I... Uh, you know, Jeff Thomas was my mentor, so he was the one who showed me what expository preaching was. And I spent a lot of time listening to him. I spent a lot of time around his house, talking to him, asking him questions. Uh, I was heavily involved with my in Christian Union. Uh, I was the president of the Christian Union one year and she was the vice president. That involved a lot of responsibility, uh, talking to people because you had to sign up to become a member. Uh, I was also heavily involved. The Christian Union did a lot of work in care homes for old people. And uh, we would go and hold a service in at least one care home every week. And I was often preaching uh, 10, 15, 20 minutes perhaps at the most. But there was always an urgency there because you would go along one week 
and maybe the next month he went along, there were two or three people missing. Mm. They, they had died. Yeah. And you've, you felt a sense of urgency mm. in preaching mm. the gospel. Uh, but my first experience in preaching was I, was, I had only been a Christian about a year. I was heavily involved in the National Young Life Campaign, which was a, a parachurch organization involved in coffee bar evangelism, those sorts of things. We had links with the London City Mission, and we were asked, a group of us, would we go and take a service in this London City Mission? It was behind a, a major London terminal, King's Cross Station. It was a red light area. It was uh, a lot of people... Uh, who were, well, they were use, misusing alcohol. And some of these men and women were meth drinkers, methylated spirits, mm. which is almost like drinking pure alcohol. Anyway, we went along, a group of us, and we'd been allocated particular tasks to lead the service. I'd been allocated to preach. Mm. I'd never preached a sermon in my life. So I, I, I did what I could in terms of preparation. We got there. There were about a dozen people there. Most of them were horizontal. They weren't sitting up. They weren't able to. They were in a sad state. And I, I thought to myself, I'm not sure you quite picked the right text here because it was from John's Gospel. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Mm. <laughs> not perhaps the most appropriate, but what could I do? I, I wasn't quick enough in those days to think on my feet, yeah. so I preached it. Yeah. Uh, how many people understood what on earth I was talking about but I could have said anything and they might not have understood. They were so yeah. sozzled. They were out of it, many of them. But, you know, that was before I went to university. But, you know, I, I learned a lot about preaching, listening to Jeff Thomas, and then doing some preaching in these old people's homes. Mm. And occasionally I went out uh, on behalf of Jeff Thomas and preached in Welsh-speaking chapel. Because I hadn't got a preacher, they were quite happy to listen to a guy in English. Mm. So I did a little bit of that, but uh, they were not really gospel-orientated. These churches are part of company with the gospel long ago. And you said you went to university. So where did you go, and did you do any kind of any kind of formal theological training? Uh, uh, not at that point. No, I went to a University of Wales in Aberystwyth. Okay. Uh, I studied geography there, and then trained to be a public school teacher. Uh, and then after a lot of conversation with Jeff Thomas, uh, I decided to follow his footsteps and took a boat across to America here, to Philadelphia, and went to Westminster Theological Seminary mm. for three years. Uh, at that point, I was persuaded personally that I was God had called me to the ministry of the Word. Uh, I had spent a summer in Labrie, in Switzerland, mm. before Francis Schaeffer was really well known. Oh, wow. And the pattern there was you had a, a morning of work and an afternoon of study or vice versa. And then you got a few days off. And while I was there, I found a copy of a book by a couple of volumes of Dabney, Robert L. Dabney. And in there, in one of the volumes, there was one or two, I can't remember, there was a, a, a chapter, What is the Call to a Gospel Ministry? And I soaked myself in that for two or three days. I had two or three days off. And I basically fasted and prayed. I went through every single passage in that chapter and thought about it, read over it, prayed over it, 
and ask, try to make a, what I would call now a sober self-assessment, which is what Romans 12, the opening verses, is all about. Making a sober self-assessment of uh, whether God had equipped me. I came to the conclusion that maybe that was what God was calling me to do and to be. But I knew very well that I could be deluded and I might have made a mistake and I needed another church uh, to tell me, you know, other men to tell me, mm. and particularly a church to tell me, yes, you do or no, you don't. Mm. Uh, but that comes a little bit later down the storyline. Okay. Uh, Austin, you went to Westminster Seminary, is that correct? That is correct. And uh, you were there for how long? Three years. Okay. And tell us maybe a little bit about your training, uh, what you what you gained from it and uh, what what was the benefit of that right. uh, to you as a, a prospective pastor? I went to Westminster Seminary simply because I wanted to be exposed to Reformed theology and consistent Reformed theology. Now, Westminster Seminary is a Presbyterian establishment. I'm a Baptist and I remained a Baptist. Uh, that's another story. I better not go into that now. Yeah. But I remained a Baptist. But during that time, I came into contact with Pastor Al Martin in Montville. Well, it wasn't Montville then, but uh, it is now, of course, Trinity Baptist Church. Uh, the church in Carlisle was pastored then by Pastor Walt Chantry. And I spent a whole uh, of my first summer, three, four months as an intern, uh, attached to... Carlisle, but not in Carlisle itself, a, a small town a few miles away in Mechanicsburg. And the man who sat there as the pastor, he sent me to teach in a Sunday school class, of teenagers, young teenagers. I worked with the young people and I preached once every Sunday. Mm. He sat in on absolutely everything I did, even my Sunday school class, mm. and critiqued me. Okay. And I learned more about preaching in those three months than I learned in three years at Westminster Seminary. And was that Wayne Mack? No, it wasn't Wayne Mack. Okay. Uh, I don't want to mention who it was. Okay, all right. There were, there were well, issues. I know Wayne came later on. And Wayne came later yeah, on. Yeah, all right. Yeah, in, my last, in our last year when I married and we came back to America, then we attended media where Wayne Mack was. Okay, that's what it was. All so right. I, I learned a lot from that summer. I mean... I still remember the first sermon I preached there. He basically took it to pieces and put it together again. Same text, but I had no real homiletical skills at that point. It was all over the place. It wasn't structured well enough. Was that hard for you, Austin, or were you able to take it and really benefit from it? Did you find yourself resisting it, even though you were young and thinking that, well, how no. dare you do this, or were you I, thankful I had for asked. It? I'd asked Pastor Martin and Pastor Chantry, look, I believe I'm called to the ministry, but I need someone to verify that besides myself. Can I go and work in one of the churches for a summer and let them make some kind of assessment? So I, I went there with an attitude of, I got a lot to learn. And I, I was so happy that someone was prepared to take me to pieces and put me together again. That's great. Would you let's interrupt that part of the story a minute? At what point did you get married to your wife, Mai? I've been in Westminster two years. Okay, uh, we, I wanted my wife to have an experience of the states, 
So we got married in the summer and then came back for my final year at Westminster Seminary. And you finished seminary, moved back to England, and then you planted a church, correct? Yeah, not straight away. Uh, We'd returned to the UK in 1971, June, July 1971. Uh, We couldn't couldn't go back to Wales because I don't speak Welsh, Mm. unlike my wife. Uh, I would have found it very difficult to get a job as a teacher. So we moved to England uh, and we moved to Cookfield Baptist Church where Errol Hulse was the pastor. Okay. Now that, that was a strange providence of God because the day we, mine I, the year before we landed in America, I we were very late landing at JFK, which is not unusual. No, still not. It was a hot, sweaty summer night and it was like 10 o'clock at night and we were stranded so i phoned pastor martin i said pastor martin we are stranded in jfk (laughs) is there any way you could come and bail us out collect us give us a bed for the night and then we'll travel down to philadelphia the next day what he didn't tell me on the phone was he'd already been to jfk earlier that morning to take somebody else in but that's somebody else was a man called Stanley Hogwood. And Stanley Hogwood was an elder, a pastor in Cookfield Baptist Church. And he had asked Pastor Martin, do you know of anybody who could help us out? And there there were churches that they had which they wanted to, you know, have pastors in. So that was a year before so we it was quite natural for us then to go back to cookfield which is what we did and we lived with the hogwarts for two or three months okay but crawley was not on the map at that stage okay i went to a tiny little village church called barkham and i preached there for four or five months Mm. every sunday Mm. and then the church a church building became available in crawley and the church in cookfield which was about 12 miles away, decided this is going to be a church plant. And I was asked with two other men. I was sent by the church in Cookfield to plant a church in Crawley. One of the men was an elder in in Cookfield, but lived in Crawley. Hmm. The other two of us lived in Cookfield at Haywards Heath. Uh, We then moved up to Crawley in 1972 and the other man dropped out so there were two of us resident in Crawley and seeking to plant a reformed Baptist church and how long was it between when you started the work until you were uh, till it constituted and you were installed as a pastor uh, that took two two stages the church was constituted with 16 members in March 1975 Uh, and some of those were new converts and then I became the full-time pastor in September 1979. I taught in a local public school. Uh, I would not recommend anybody to try and plant a church and hold a full-time teaching post at the same time. Uh, my oh. GP told me, you, you're, you're going to kill yourself. He mm. said, there are three people who project their voices 
and are in danger. Opera singers, preachers, and teachers. He said, you're doing two, six days a week. Well, can you tell us about your career as an opera singer? Because that's yeah. really interesting that you did all three of those. You don't want any demonstration from that. me. Okay. Uh, um, so you in 1979 were you then were you when you were installed were you able to leave your teaching job at that point yes, or, yeah. or so? I I was formally recognised as an elder when the church was constituted, but I had effectively being been an elder there doing the work of a pastor from the time we we, we went there. So I uh, yes I was formally recognised as an elder in 1975, 1979, I became. You know, fully salaried by them, fully okay, supported great. by them. Uh, so, well, let's try to move into your ministry period of life. There, you, you. So, from 1975, is that yep. when you you were? And when you just retired? 2018. 2018. Yep. So, it's a fairly uh, ex- long time. You saw a lot of changes. Oh, uh, I should uh, say. culturally, religiously, and all of those things. Uh, we could do. I'm sure we could do ten podcasts and interviewing you on some of these things. But we're going to try to stick to a few things here, Oz. And you know, one of the things I want to ask you is, you, you as you look back on that time. Now, from a period of retirement, and I, I assume you reflect on those things. Can you maybe share what are some of the what are things you miss? What are the what were the what are the joys that you experience? The highs, the the things that you look at and you say, "This is what makes pastoring worthwhile." This is why I stuck with it as long as I did. I think the greatest joy was probably seeing people converted, and there was one period in the life of the church which was really quite remarkable. Uh, Someone had said to me before that happened, someone had said to me, no one will ever be converted through your ministry, which was not quite the most encouraging thing to be told. (laughs) But uh, I said nothing in reply to this particular person. I laid out that matter before God, week after week after week. And uh, during that, time the subsequent months there were a period of when people were being converted every month at one point every week wow and they were all being converted when they stood up and gave their testimony it was they were all saying this is through the ministry of the church here and the ministry of the word wow and that particular person never came back to me and apologized or said i got it wrong i just left that but it was a great joy to see, you know, men, women being converted, being their lives being changed. Some of them were a mess. Some of them were a mess. One, one of the guys is still my best friend, a fellow called Mickey Finn. Mm. Mickey was converted in my front room in my study. Uh, he and, used and, to come... And Mickey's still a deacon in the church. Mickey's still a deacon years, in the church. Yes, he is. And... Uh, yeah, he 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 was uh, he was a biologist. He'd been trained in evolution and all that sort of stuff. His wife had been converted previously. Uh, I haven't time to go into all that story, but I'll just stick with Mickey. And he said, "Well, look, I'm a school teacher. I'll come every few weeks, and we'll talk things through." So he did. He came every few weeks. I gave him a book to read on the parable of the prodigal son and he came after about a year of this uh 
he came one night, sat in a brown armchair in the, the corner of my study, and he didn't move for three hours. And at the end of the conversation, he said, I'm just going to bow my head and pray. Mm -hmm. I said, do you want me to leave the room? He said, no. He just prayed quietly and cast himself upon Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, after he came, he'd finished praying, he tried to get up. He was locked. <laughs> and he had one leg on top of the other. And we had to, my, I had to get my in and we had to unlock him. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to stretch his limbs. Wow. But he was soundly converted. He and his wife, they'd lived next door to us. And uh, it was quite remarkable to see that. But he was one of, one of, one of many. Another one was a guy called Steve Palmer. Jim, you would remember Steve. Yeah, I remember Steve well. Steve had all kinds of mental problems. Uh, he, was, uh, he was starved of oxygen as a child, so had brain, as a, as a baby. So he had brain damage. And uh, Steve was a loner. Someone found him in a park one evening and brought him along to the church. He had a huge bottle of Coke, which was his standard drink, and brought him along. We had him back home, and uh, all we got was grunts and groans from him. I'm thinking to myself, can this guy read? Can he write? Anyway, he used to come round every single week, and I would explain the gospel in, as simply as I could. And when I saw he got... The particular point I was trying to make, I'd say, that's enough for now, Steve. I'll see you next week and we'll take you a step further. And that, that, that went on for several months. And then he went to one of our young people's meetings and he was walking home and he was near a, a railway station, near where he lived. He stood on a particular pavement, stone, a slab, and he was converted there. And I, I've never seen a guy so radically changed. Uh, it was quite amazing, quite amazing. It was like a man in his right mind for the first time in his life. And he was very aggrieved when that paving stone was removed and they tarmacked it because he couldn't stand again on the exact spot where he'd been converted. So, Oz, real quickly, I seem to remember, and I think it was your son Jeremy told me, that when you had to get rid of that brown chair in your office. Yeah. I can't remember if it had just gotten so dilapidated that there was well, a real sense of grief with that, almost like that was... A, yeah, yeah. You had done so many Mickey counseling was, sessions. Mickey was very so upset. Many, Mickey was very upset. You could look at that and say, that's the chair, that's yeah. the spot where we uh, we did that. So Our, I, cat, I, I our cat ruined the chair. I had to go. <laughs> Use it as a scratching pad. <laughs> so I had to well, go. Those, and as we took we, it down to the car... Spaces yeah, we took it down to the car. And Mickey came out of his house and said, you can't throw that chair away. I was converted in it. Uh, but it had to uh, go. Wonderful. It had to go. Other joys? That just out of the forty-five years of ministry, you did other joys that you, that consider high moments for you as a pastor. I think the change that I saw. I, I always did premarital counseling, and some of the some of the people who came didn't have a clue, not a clue, about what marriage was. On one or two occasions, I had to explain. I had to give them basic sexual less, sex lessons. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, no idea. Uh, but to see the way some of those people took on board what I was trying to impart to them and to know where many of them are now. Uh, some of the guys in particular came very skeptical and said, you know, what, what do I need this for? 
Well, it didn't take usually 15, 20 minutes to realize, uh, for them to realize this was pretty important. Uh, and I, I think I think to see, you know, to see the changes that took place and to know that many of those that I took through there are now still husband and wife after all these years have raised their kids in appropriate biblical fashion. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a tremendous sense of uh, is satisfaction, the right word, but it certainly brought joy to my soul to mm-hmm. see the fruits of that work. Yeah. Yeah, satisfaction, I think, is a, is a good word as you look back on those things. What about regrets, things you maybe would want to have done differently as you look back on your ministry? Well, you always make hasty decisions, don't you? Yeah. Rash decisions. Yeah. Uh, look back and people that I upset by rashly speaking and assessing a situation when I didn't have perhaps sufficient information, data. Mm-hmm. I re- you know, every pastor will look back and say, I should have prayed far more than I have ever done. But not only prayed for myself, but prayed for my congregation. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't pray enough for the people to whom I was preaching. Uh, and I regret that. I think I I look back with, with sorrow, but I think every single pastor would say that. I never prayed enough. Uh, I think those, those would be some of my biggest regrets, but... You know, there were times, there was a very serious time when there was huge division in the church. I mean, for someone to say no one will be converted through your ministry is one thing. But when 14 members out of a church of maybe 35, 36 leave in one fell swoop, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't totally responsible for that. I did submit all the paperwork to a couple of trusted pastors and they said you were more sinned against than sinning but you need to address these particular things mm-hmm. but they, those were regrets but they happen in every church you get misunderstood you get falsely accused people walk out you know and you think it's you you think it's all your fault but it's not necessarily the case mm-hmm. so 45 years at the same church, Austin. Just want to be clear, that that is the number, That right? is the case. Yes. So I just want you to know, in, in a lot of the work that I'm doing, I'm trying to convince a pastor to stay five years yeah. at his church at least. Just don't bail too early. Like three years is not enough time to evaluate, you know, what what's going on. But <clears throat> 45 years, how did you know, Austin, it was time to... To step away. It was time to not just leave your church, but but leave the to ministry. To step away? Yeah. Uh, I'm now 76. So in 2018, I would have been 72. And there came a point in the church uh, where there was a big issue between two of the members. And I was, I was there when it happened. So I had to go and deal with it. It was a it was a major matter of confrontation, really. I, it was confrontational counseling. Mm-hmm. So I had to sit down with first person, go through the whole thing, sit down with the second person, go through the whole thing, and then get them together and seek to reconcile them and get to ask for forgiveness. It took weeks. It took weeks. And the first time I got them together, 
one of them said, I'm not going to forgive you. So then I had to involve Jeremy, and he had to spend another few weeks going through the same process, getting us together uh, and getting them together. And uh, this time it was successful in that they both apologized to one another and sought one another's forgiveness. Mm. I went back from that, that meeting, that, that meeting where they did that only lasted 20 minutes. I went home, uh, I sat in the chair and I said, do you want a drink? I said, yeah. By the time she came back with a hot drink, I was flat out. I slept for three hours. <laughs> and I looked back on that period and thought, I cannot do this kind of confrontational counseling anymore because I will end up being the one who will need discipline because I wanted to knock their heads together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I would have lost my temper. Yeah. I would have lost my cool, which would have been disastrous. Mm. And I, I talked to my friend Bill Hughes, who you've already mentioned, mm. Jim, and uh, I said, Bill, did you ever reach the point where you felt you could not really realistically continue? He said, yes. He said, it's one thing to preach. It's quite another thing to engage in prolonged counseling where you are, your emotions are being stretched beyond your capabilities. And he told me, don't feel guilty about it. Mm. Yeah. And so I decided it was time for me to quit hmm. that particular aspect of pastoral ministry. I still preach, but preaching is easier <laughs> than that confrontational yeah. Amen. kind <laughs> of counseling. So that's that happened in 2018. Now, that's, that's helpful. In fact, it's interesting you say that it was Bill Hughes that said that to you. He said something to me 10 years ago that really made a big impact on me, and it was something similar when he was talking about asking how did you know it's time to leave? And he, yeah. the way he worded it to me was, I want to preach till I die, but yeah. I can't. My, he says, my heart can't do the pastoral work anymore. Yeah. And that that's always stuck I, with me. That's where I was. Yeah. That's where I was. I'm, I say, I'm still preaching. Yeah. And I love to preach. Yeah. Although it's a huge responsibility. But, you know, it's, I, 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 when, I, when, I, when I moved from Crawley to the new church in Derby, the first thing I said to him, I do not want to be an elder. Hey, watch what you say, Austin. <laughs> so, would you let's pivot a moment? Will you tell us about your children? You mentioned you've been married to Mai for how many years now? Fifty-two. Fifty-two. Yeah. How many children do you have? Who are they? Four children. Okay. Two girls, two boys. Uh, Jeremy, of course, is now the pastor in Maidenbow. Right. We worked together there for uh, twenty, you know, eighteen years. 18 years, co-pastors. Hmm. I never took him on as an assistant. I didn't believe in having an assistant. If he was coming on board, he was coming on board as a co-pastor. Yeah. And uh, so that was the case. Uh, my other son, Dan. Daniel is a TV journalist. Like a famous TV journalist. Uh, Wait, yeah. I'll say it. <laughs> he is a famous TV journalist. He's a celebrity, whether he likes it or not. I follow him on Twitter. That I mean, you know, oh, well, come yes. on. If you want to follow him, you follow him on Twitter. But he, he, he did the BBC breakfast program for 10 years, which meant getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Wow. Uh, he no longer works for the BBC. He works now for Channel 5 uh, and does their news, their evening, early evening news, 
and does documentaries, writes books about some of the people he's met and so on. Mm. So, yeah, he lives in Sheffield. And then we have two daughters. Uh, Rachel is the oldest of our children. She is Daniel's PA, personal assistant. Okay. Um, she has she is married to uh, a lovely man called Ian, and uh, they they live in Coventry, which is about an hour south of us. And then we have Judith, our youngest daughter. She is in Derby, and uh, her husband Lee is an elder in the church we now attend. Mm. So they they all became Christians in their teens. Uh, they've married Christians. Three of our grandchildren have professed faith in Christ. The last one was only baptized last Saturday. Mm. We watched it online yeah. wow. <laughs> from Sheffield. Mm. Uh, so we have 10 grandchildren praying every day for their conversion. Uh, yeah, but they, they are a very privileged lot of kids mm. because not only do they have all their parents, but all their grandparents on both sides are yeah. all Christians. So there's a lot of people praying for them. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so imagine you got, there's a lot of younger pastors who listen to this. So what kind of advice would you give in just some general things? If you had a younger pastor that you could talk to, what would you want to say to him? Avoid making rash decisions. Don't jump to conclusions about what is being said or not being said. Don't entertain suspicions mm. until you have firm facts. Mm. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to create all sorts of trouble for yourself and for your wife and your family and ultimately the church. You know, you're going to face conflict. There's no two ways about that. And some of the people who will disappoint you will surprise you because there'll be some of the people that perhaps have been closest to you. Mm -hmm. And that's always uh, an issue. But then, you know, it's there are people who say, oh, well... Uh, what we need to do is to establish a New Testament church. And my answer to that is always, well, which one, friend? Uh, would you want to join the Corinthian church? Oh, no, 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 I, don't, I didn't mean the Corinthians. Well, what about Galatia? What about the churches there? Well, I didn't mean them either. Uh, so which church did you mean? Well, there's barely a church in the New Testament and barely an issue that Paul didn't have to deal with. Yeah. Conflicts and difficulties. These are things that happen. You know, if you sat down and were told what was going to happen, you would never enter the ministry. At the end of the day, there is no situation that confronts you that the grace of God is not adequate to meet. And you have to believe that, you have to pray that, and you have to constantly remind yourself of that. But to get to that point where you prove the grace of God, it may be a very sticky path and a very difficult path to tread because there are all sorts of things. You know, you can have your constitution all laid out in black and white. And when it comes to a case of discipline, it's as if that's never, that constitution doesn't exist. People go and that they start acting in a way that is completely contrary to everything that's in the, in, the, in the church constitution with regard to discipline. They protest. This is being unkind. You're being harsh. Uh, no, is this sin? You know, is it, does this need, does this person need to be disciplined, formally rebuked, or even put out, sadly, of the church? People protest about those things. You know, you've got you've to have all those things in place, but even if those things are in place... It doesn't necessarily mean you won't have a problem. Mm. But, you know, it's, 
you've, you've, got to, you've got to learn to trust God at the end of the day, to trust God and prove the sufficiency of his grace. There are many times I could have left Crawley, many times, and I had attractive offers. I could have gone to New Zealand. It took me, I think it took me less than a day to decide I wasn't taking that up. And that was on the back of a, you know, a lot of opposition in the church. I wasn't going anywhere. I think God has given me some grit and determination. I'm not one for quitting, but at the same time, it's a temptation. I think that's a great place to stop. Okay. Um, Austin, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we want to pray for you. And how can we pray for you as you um, enter these last, uh, this last phase of, of, I mean, I guess we can say that, of life and ministry? Like I said on uh, leave, before they leave the stage, you know, I want to serve Christ for as long as I can to the best of my ability. At the moment, I preach every month in the church, in Castlefields Church in Derby. But I've said to the men there, I want to be an encourager of you men. And that is my ministry, I think, principally, one of encouragement. And there's not enough of that. A word of encouragement is, you know, to be a Barnabas is such a, a help to people. Uh, and pastors don't often get encouragement. Sorry, before we pray, I'm going to ask Jim to pray for you in a minute. But uh, there's two books you have been spent a long time working on. I'd like you to mention those to those who are, who are listening. Would you mention what the book is, who it's on? You did, uh, you've done a couple of books on a couple of significant figures. Yeah, the first book I, I produced for quite extensive uh, biography of Benjamin Keach, who was a pioneer uh, Baptist, particular Baptist pastor in London in the 17th century. Uh, it's called The Excellent Benjamin Keach. Mm -hmm. It's still available, but make sure you get the second edition. Who's the publisher with that? Joshua Press. Okay, thanks. And the other book? And the other book is not yet out. It's a book about Robert Hall Jr., not to be confused with his father, who remained a consistent particular Baptist. These men were uh, contemporaries of Andrew Fuller, William Carey, Samuel Pierce, men like that. Robert Hall Jr. sadly was responsible for taking the particular Baptists away from their Calvinistic roots. And I tried to look at that and learn some of the lessons for our day. Uh, and that, I'm not sure what the title of that book it will be, but uh, it's, it's, on, it's, it's really on the, the loss of Calvinism. You know, by the time Spurgeon came, Hall died in 1831, Spurgeon became eminent as a preacher in the, in the 1850s, of course. Mm -hmm. But by the time Spurgeon came to London, he was one of the few men who was consistently holding to Calvinistic soteriology, doctrine of salvation. Mm -hmm. uh, it had gone. It mm -hmm. evaporated. Mm -hmm. And Robert Hall, sadly, was one of the men responsible for mm -hmm. that. Austin, thank you for coming and being willing to let it's us a talk to you. And, and I just want to I want to say thank you for your influence in, in my life. And I owe to Jim a great debt with a couple of people, especially I met because of him and that to you and your wife, Mai, and your son, Jeremy, who's become a good friend of mine through the years. So just thanks for your willingness to come and, and talk and, and, and just share your wisdom with us. I'm, I'm going to ask Jim to pray for you before we uh, sign thank off. So thank Jim. you.
Our Father in heaven, thank you for the grace of God that saves. Thank you for loving Austin and drawing him to yourself. And Father, we thank you for that grace that equips and that gifts uh, men for uh, ministry. And thank you for using him over uh, these past five decades uh, there uh, in Crawley and in other parts of the UK and throughout the U.S. and through his writing ministry. Uh, Father, we do uh, pray for Oz and for Mai uh, as they uh, are part of this church now in Derby and ask, Lord, for your uh, blessing upon them as they continue to love and to serve your people in a different capacity. We join them in thanking you for the salvation of their children and three of the ten grandchildren and ask, Lord, that we may hear happy reports of all ten of them coming to know and love the Savior. Thank you, Father, that you are indeed a faithful God, and thank you for faithfully watching over your servant through these years. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.